This morning we begin a new lesson series, Real Answers to the Big Questions. And you'll recall that a few months ago I asked you to submit your big questions, what you always wanted to ask about God, the Bible, Christianity, and so on. Your response was actually pretty overwhelming. I carefully and prayerfully sorted through these so that similar topically related questions were placed together in categories, ranking them according to the number of questions in each category. And today we begin a 10-week journey to attempt to answer these questions. In David Letterman fashion, we'll count down from the 10th most asked question to the first most asked question. Now I need to say that unfortunately I cannot deal with all of the questions that were submitted, unfortunately. And some simply didn't make the top ten list. Others were of a specific personal nature and would be best answered, I think, directly, one-on-one. And so if you find that your question does not get addressed in this series, please feel free to approach me individually, and I'll do my best to answer it with you. Now with that said, before we answer question number ten, Let's pause and ask God to speak to us clearly this morning. Would you pray with me? We open your word together again today. Lord, we think with the minds that you have given us. We reason. We appeal to logic all in our desire to know You in a greater and better way. We do have questions, God. Not in a cynical way like we're doubting You, but we do have questions. Some big questions. And I pray in the series ahead that You would help us to do the very best we can to try to find the answers to those questions, at least in our human thinking and reasoning. So I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our minds to understand and our hearts to receive the truth. Your truth. The only truth. That we would hide it there in our hearts that it would produce the fruit in our lives that you desire it to produce. Be our teacher. Today and throughout this series, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of us this morning have ever served on a jury? Can I see your hands? There's a few, that's good. In our judicial system, Jurors are carefully selected and are charged with the responsibility to weigh the evidence presented by both the prosecution and the defense, then to render a verdict of guilty or not guilty. Right after the prosecution and defense rest, and before the case is turned over to the jury for deliberation, the judge always gives clear instructions. And in those instructions, the judge reminds the jurors that it is their responsibility to sift through the evidence presented at the trial and to reach a decision that is beyond reasonable doubt. 
Notice the judge does not say beyond any and all doubt, nor beyond the shadow of a doubt. Rather, the judge tells the jury they must be convinced beyond reasonable doubt. To expect a verdict that is beyond any and all doubt is deemed by our judicial system to be unrealistic and unreasonable. Because life just doesn't work that way. I mean, in our everyday lives, we make decisions based on high probability. We seldom make decisions based on absolute certainty. For instance, if you board a flight from Los Angeles to New York City, you have faith that you will arrive safely at your destination. You do not have absolute certainty, but based upon certain facts, you know that there is a very high probability that the airplane will get you from here to there. Shall I talk about the disruptions that are possible? (laughs) Mechanical failure of the airplane? A weather-related airport closure? Certainly could happen in the winter. Hijack? A plane crash? We don't want to think about those things, but they are, in fact, a possibility. You see, except in the case of math and formal logic, pretty much everything in life must be negotiated on the basis of determining probability factors. Seldom do we have the luxury of making decisions based upon absolute certainty. You weren't absolutely certain about your spouse on your wedding day. (laughs) Some of you are still wondering. (laughs) You aren't absolutely certain that you will have a job. Tomorrow morning. Well, there's a thought. You can't be absolutely certain that the lunch you eat after church today won't be tainted by food poisoning. Now that will probably come to your mind as you're getting ready to eat. (laughs) You see, all of us learn to live with a measure of uncertainty and we grow accustomed to weighing evidence, considering data, and making decisions based upon high probability factors because that's just the way life works. Now, I bring this up because it's extremely important as we approach today's lesson because question number 10 is, why should I believe in God? There were a number of questions, I think three or four, submitted on this particular topic. A couple of them I know for sure were questions from you about your family members and your friends who don't believe in God, who are skeptical, if you will, and how can you answer their question about why you believe in God? And why should they believe in God? I think those are great questions. But it must be understood from the outset that the insistence upon absolute proof of the existence of God is an unreasonable and unrealistic request to make. We don't even place that kind of responsibility on jurors in our country's judicial system. Rather, what is a reasonable and realistic request is that enough evidence be presented for the existence of God, in order to tip the scales to the point where a person can say, I am convinced beyond reasonable doubt that there is, in fact, a God. Or I am sufficiently compelled by the facts and moved by the arguments to the point where I must be true to my mind, I must be true to my mental faculties, if you will, and conclude that there is a God. A lot of people don't think so. A lot of people are questioning, does God exist? 
What if you ask that question out on the street? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? No. No, I guess I do. That's a hard question. Uh, I'm still questioning that right now. Uh, Not God. I believe in something bigger than myself. (laughs) I believe there's a possibility that there might be a greater being out there. But Depends on which type of God. God? Uh, No. No? Why not? Why not? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I believe that there may be something, but I don't really follow any guided religion. Do you believe in God? No. Why don't you believe in God? Because I believe in um, existentialism. I wouldn't say that it's impossible that there's a God, but I don't think there's a way that we can know either way. No one can control me and tell me what is right and wrong, but only myself. I don't believe there is a God. I believe there is a mother nature. At times I can believe in it. If you can think of that, you know, if you believe that. Sometimes I, uh, you know... I don't think there is one. How do you know there isn't a God? I don't, but I don't know there is. And until somebody can prove it, then I'm just going to follow my own morals. Do you believe in God? I do. Oh, yes, sir. Most definitely. I'm a firm believer. To look around the world around you and assume that there's not uh, some sort of supreme essence pushing it all and making you know the grass grow and the trees flower and the birds sing and things is kind of, it seems foolish. Well, there has to be something that caused the first thing to move. And that first thing to cause it, I say, is God. Who wouldn't believe in God? (laughs) Why should I believe in God? Let me share with you six reasons why I believe we can be convinced beyond reasonable doubt of the existence of God. Reason number one, cause and effect. Cause and effect. This is often called the cosmological argument. Don't let that big word scare you. Simply comes from two words, cosmos, meaning world, and logos, meaning logic or reason. So when you put the two together, you end up with the logic or the reason for the world. In other words, who or what is responsible for the existence of the universe and everything in it? Or who or what is the cause of all of this effect? Now, Truthfully, there are only two possibilities. Let me explain. Hang in there with me on this. Let's draw a circle around everything that exists in the universe. The galaxies, the earth, the plant and animals, the birds and fish, the people. Everything that exists in this universe is inside this circle. Now everything in the universe is inside the circle and everything that is inside that circle is contingent. That is, all things are interdependent upon other things in the universe for their existence. And according to the law of thermodynamics, all things are in a gradual state of entropy, that is, they're slowly headed toward non-existence. Now the question is, who or what is responsible for the existence of all of this contingent stuff in the first place? And there are only two possibilities. First of all, the ultimate cause might be inside that circle. In other words, something that's in this universe is responsible for everything else that is in this universe. Or second, the ultimate cause might be outside the circle. Something greater than the circle. 
And the question is, which possibility makes the most sense? Well, if everything that is inside the circle is dependent upon other things inside the circle, how rational is it really to locate the ultimate cause of everything inside the circle? It just doesn't make sense that something that is contingent upon something else for its existence could be responsible for the existence of everything. Doesn't a thinking person have to conclude that everything that is inside the circle must find its ultimate cause outside the circle? And by deduction, whatever is outside the circle must be non-contingent, self-caused, self-reliant, and independent, which means that it would be eternal, unlimited, and all-powerful. And doesn't that sound dangerously close to a definition for God? That's why Isaiah cries out in Isaiah chapter 40. Who else has held the oceans in his hands and measured off the heavens with his ruler? Who else knows the weight of the earth and weighs the mountains and the hills? How can we describe God? With what can we compare Him? Are you so ignorant? Have you never heard nor understood? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. Don't miss that last phrase. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. You see, God Himself is above the circle. He is outside the circle. He is the ultimate cause of all that exists inside the circle. It's the only possibility that makes any rational sense whatsoever. And over the centuries, thousands of people have wrestled with this cosmological argument for the existence of God. People have dissected it and debated it and lost sleep over it. Why? Because it makes logical, rational sense. Many people have concluded that it is a powerful argument for the existence of an eternal, unlimited, all-powerful being. Cause and effect. Reason number two, order and design. Order and design. It's often called the teleological argument. Again, don't let that word frighten you. It comes from two words, telos, meaning end or finish, and logos, meaning logic or reason. When you put the two of them together, you have the logic or the reason for the end or the finish. In other words, who or what is responsible for all of the order and design that we find in this universe? How can we explain the intricacies, the complexities, the symmetries, the incredible coordination of all of the objects and things that we find in this world around us? Philosopher William Paley wrote, There simply cannot be a design without a designer. Simply put, the teleological argument challenges the theory that everything in this ordered universe came into existence by sheer chance. You see, the Big Bang Theory says, in essence, that a chance collision of floating gases out in space set in motion a random series of events that over billions and billions of years finally brought us to the complex state of the universe where we are today. However, proponents of this theory can never adequately explain where the mysterious gases came from in the first place. And many are outright embarrassed at the mathematical improbability of a chance collision of floating gases eventually producing even a single molecule, not to mention a process as complex as photosynthesis or a phenomenon as breathtaking as the flight of an eagle. 
that all happen by sheer chance? The teleological argument says that random chance explanation for this world is highly, highly, highly unlikely. It says that whenever and wherever there's order and design, reasonable people think and know that somebody is responsible for that design. By the way, I've never told you the story of my laptop, have I? Uh, We're running all this program and everything you see here off of my laptop. I love my laptop. Did I tell you how I got that laptop? There was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a random explosion at a steel factory. And the most amazing thing happened. In the wreckage and the ruins of that explosion from that steel factory, they found this laptop. It was amazing. Perfect. It worked just great. Yeah, you're all looking at me like you ought to be looking at me. I'm about as crazy as a loon. And you have a right to be feeling that way because you know, as well as I know, that that's not where that laptop came from. Something as complex as that requires an intelligent designer. That's just a laptop. It's not the world. In his book, Origin of Species, Darwin himself wrote, to suppose the eye with so many parts working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. (laughs) That's about the only part of Darwin's writings that I agree with wholeheartedly. (laughs) Friends, only a creator, a master designer can explain the design we see in the human eye or the instinct of a homing pigeon or the web spinning abilities of a spider or the miracle of a newborn baby as has been said by many clear thinking people much more so called faith is required to attribute the wonders of our world to the chance explosion of floating gases than to accept the existence of an eternal intelligent all powerful designer God in fact let's read Romans 1 verses 19 and 20 out loud together would you read this with me the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of His existence and great eternal power, so they will have no excuse when they stand before God at judgment day. Order and design. Reason number three. Right and wrong. Right and wrong. Often called the moral argument. It asks the question, how does one account for the fact that in human beings everywhere worldwide there is a moral code that provides them with an inner sense of right and wrong? If human beings merely originated from primeval gases, if they are merely the product of billions and billions of years of evolution, how does one account for the fact that in every culture on this planet today, people value truthfulness over deceitfulness, or kindness over cruelty, or loyalty over betrayal? How do we explain that? Are gases and genes capable of implanting a moral code of values in the hearts and minds of people worldwide? 
I'm always amazed when I encounter an atheist who is um, fighting for a moral cause. You know, save the whales <laughs> or feed the hungry. Because on the one hand, the atheist does not believe that he or she is a created being fashioned in the image of God, that we do not have a moral code stamped upon our hearts by a supreme moral being. And yet on the other hand, the atheist is appealing to that universal code of right and wrong to stop this tragic extermination of whales or to awaken people to the plight of the hungry. And the irony is, how can he or she appeal to this sense of right and wrong without first taking the time to explain the origin of this sense of right and wrong? The Apostle Paul refers to this moral argument in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. You see, the only logical, rational explanation for this inner sense of right and wrong in the hearts and minds of human beings is the existence of a moral God who placed it there when He created us in His own image. Reason number four. Jot and tittle. (laughs) Jot and tittle. Got to go back to the King James for that one. I'll explain it in a minute. It's commonly referred to as the biblical argument. It says, in essence, that the reliability and the durability of the Bible, the timeless universal influence of the Scriptures, is evidence of the existence of an eternal author, God. In fact, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5 and verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, that's jot, Not the least stroke of a pen, that's tittle in the King James, will by any means disappear from the law. Jot and tittle. Interesting phrase in the King James. Terms actually to describe literally the little breath marks or the punctuation marks used in Hebrew writing. In other words, the Bible will stand the test of time in opposition down to... The minutest little detail. Jot and tittle. Psalm 119 verse 89 tells us, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm. 1 Peter 1 verses 24 and 25 puts it this way, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now we'll talk a lot more detail about the Bible in just a few weeks when we answer the question, is the Bible really reliable? But for today's lesson, let's just point out that the Bible has demonstrated itself to be much more than a mere book. It has the fingerprints of God all over it, the DNA of God all through it, with its fulfilled prophecy, its historical accuracy, its timeless relevancy. It is obviously not the product of a human being or several human beings. It is obviously the product of a divine being. Let's read Second Peter 2, verse 21 out loud together. Would you read this with me? 
The main thing to keep in mind here is that no scripture is a matter of private opinion. And why? Because it's not concocted in the human heart. It resulted when the Holy Spirit prompted men and women to speak God's Word. Yeah, it's inspired. God breathed. Here's the bottom line. The existence of the Bible itself points to the existence of God Himself. Jot and tittle. Reason number five. Flesh and bone. Flesh and bone. We could call this the incarnational argument. Simply put, another reason we know beyond reasonable doubt that God exists is that He has lived as human flesh and bone among us. (laughs) The incarnation. God became a human being in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 puts it this way, Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is Himself God, and Christ became a human being and lived here on earth among us. In his book, The Christian and Philosophy, Casserly writes, The gospel provides that knowledge of ultimate truth which men have sought through philosophy in vain, inevitably in vain, because it is essential to the very nature of God that He cannot be discovered by searching and probing of human minds, that He can only be known if He first takes the initiative and reveals Himself. And that's exactly what He did. He revealed Himself to us in flesh and bone. In other words, the existence of Jesus Himself is evidence of the existence of God Himself. Or in Jesus' own words in John 14, verses 9 and 10, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me. In essence, the incarnational argument says that God came to this earth and He lived among us as a human being. It's as though God were saying, Hello, (laughs) I'm real, here I am, you can believe in me. Flesh and bone. Reason number six, observation and experience. Observation and experience, commonly referred to as the empirical argument, another big word I know. Once again, it's compound, in meaning in, and pyra meaning trial. Put it together, empirical, it means in trial, or literally experience. In other words, this argument for the existence of God is from personal observation and experience of God in one's own life. And although this argument is not conclusive in and of itself, philosopher William Alston wrote, Christian experiences such as feeling the presence of God or receiving a sense of guidance from God or feeling strengthened by God, all of that combines to make us even more confident in our belief once we come to that conclusion. And Ron Nash goes so far as to say, religious experiences must be taken very seriously as evidence of the existence of God, providing that the person making the experiential claim is widely known to be a trustworthy person. What he's driving at is that thousands and thousands and thousands of intelligent, well-respected, highly influential people all over the world claim that they are regularly experiencing a relationship with God. They testify to feeling loved by God, 
They claim that they have received forgiveness from God that has unshackled them from bonds that have held them most of their lives. They acknowledge being heard by God through answered prayer. God has transformed their lives. And that cannot be dismissed. That's not to say that an occasional highly delusional person doesn't manufacture religious experience for a variety of reasons. But that shouldn't discount the testimony of someone with integrity who regularly bears witness to an experience of God in his or her life. Christians all over the world would gladly take a polygraph test to prove the reality of those unforgettable moments when God makes Himself known through experience. How shall we account for these claims? Are Millions of people hallucinating? Are they lying? Are they part of a well-organized conspiracy? Hardly. They simply know from personal experience that God exists. And they are glad to testify about it. In fact, let's read David's personal testimony. Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3. Let's read it out loud together. Would you read it with me? He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out from the bog and mire, and set my feet on a hard, firm path and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing of praises to our God. Now many will hear of the glorious things He did for me and stand in awe before the Lord and put their trust in Him. Testimony. The empirical argument simply says when you've considered the cosmological, the teleological, the moral, the biblical, and the incarnational arguments for the existence of God, tack on to the end of those arguments the fact that millions of credible people all over this world are claiming to experience a personal, daily relationship with God. And that just affirms all the other evidence. Observation and experience. Real answers to the big questions. This morning we've attempted to answer the question, why should I believe in God? And our faith in the existence of God is based upon at least these six reasons. Cause and effect. The cosmological argument. Who or what is the ultimate cause of the contingent things inside the circle of this universe? Order and design. The teleological argument. Who or what is responsible for all the amazing order and design we see in this universe? Right and wrong. The moral argument. Why is there a universal sense of right and wrong inbred right into the nature of people? Jod and Tittle. The biblical argument. Who or what is behind the timeless and universal influence of the Bible? Flesh and bone, the incarnational argument. What can we learn from the incarnation, Jesus, God in the flesh? An observation and experience, the empirical argument. How is it that millions of people claim to have a daily personal relationship with God? The only logical, rational answer to these questions is there is a God. An eternal, all-powerful creator, the master designer of this complex universe, the source of the moral code written in our hearts, the author of the Bible, the one who became human for our sake and who is capable of regularly connecting with his creation, you and me. Let's close by reading Psalm 14 and verse 1 out loud together. Would you read it with me? Only fools say in their heart, there is no God. 